The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Australia has become the first country to legalise medical psychedelics. This comes as recent research has shown promise in treating chronic mental health conditions with the drugs. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. David Erizzo, who's clinical senior lecturer in psychiatry at the Imperial College in London. David, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. There's an element of this that I think is is counterintuitive to most people, which is if what you are struggling with is your grasp on and capacity to deal with reality, how does fragmenting that reality, albeit briefly, help? That's a very good question, in particular if what we were primarily aiming at treating was uh, psychotic illness. Um, but that is kind of the area of mental health that we so far and Nobody has re-explored because there the de- data from the early phase in the 50s, 60s are, are a little bit worrying. So it's non-psychotic illness where you do not really have a distorted sense of reality. So it's mood disorders the, rather than psychosis. Yeah, it's rather the affective disorders. Um, so yeah, mood disorders. So it includes everything from anxiety, OCD, depression in particular. Also PTSD, so post-traumatic stress. And there are also trials in eating disorder. Um, so that's the main focus with the classic psychedelics. Um, and how does treatment work? Can you walk us through a, a treatment regimen for somebody with one of those conditions and the type of psychedelic they might be given and how they experience it? Yeah, so the, the main compound that have been studied in recent years have been psilocybin. So that's the one that exists in magic mushrooms. Um, so we use it typically synthesized from a lab but there are also companies who are extracting it and making that into a product that can be used for trialing. Um, so the trials, and therefore in a way also the clinical model that will be tested out in more real-world setting in Australia, um, will be um, the patients are screened carefully. Um, I think that in Australia probably you'll see more a bit more mixed groups of people with more comorbidity, um, that sits within uh, a safe area of mental health. So As in a lot of different conditions. It could be a person who has maybe um, depression, but also have some anxiety, might have some symptoms of... I, I don't know exactly how they how stringent they will be. In a way, it will be good for the world and for the data if it's obviously safety monitored and data collected, but in a way that they are more looking like real people because in these small trials we and others have been conducting so far, you typically are very selective in getting people who are very, very, very clean in terms of a diagnosis. In order, But to explain to me, you take the individual yeah. and is it as simple as you bring them into a, a, a warm, safe room, sit them down and they, to use the colloquialism, trip on magic mushrooms for the afternoon? It is, apart from the fact that they, first they go through a screening uh, where you, in a way, take a very careful history, got to build a rapport with them, and then there are a couple of preparation sessions before where you build around the expectation and preparedness to go into it. And if people, in a way, we, we in trials have uh, sometimes excluded people who, who just thought this would be a complete magic bullet and, and just wanted this to completely change their life around just from the experience, not particularly motivated to do some of the work themselves because it is, and that is in a way the beauty of it, it is really a meeting point between pharmacology, the agent that we give, the psychedelic compound itself, and then talking therapies, so psychology. So, And it, does, that, does that, David, happen simultaneously? Does, is it while the person is, is going through the effects of the psilocybin that you are talking to them and trying to come to a root of, of their issue? Or is it that they have the experience and then they reflect on it? It's more the latter, 
So there is another model with psychedelics that has not really been reopened much in modern trials that were also used in the 50s, called psycholytic uh, therapy. That is where you use a smaller psychedelic dose and actually do some of the therapy work on the drug while the drug is, is affecting you. But we, we typically give higher doses in these modern trials. And so the, the, the contact and the therapeutic input is in the preparation phase. And then it's just sort of gentle support little bit of guiding, holding space if need be during the actual trip session. And then the a lot of the important work is exactly as you say, sort of reflecting on it in what we call psychological integration work subsequently. Can you can you give us a, a hypothetical example of how that uh, um, psychological integration work typically occurs? What are the kind of things that people say? What effect does it have on them? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question, uh, obviously, and that's in a way the beauty, and that's also where it distinguishes and and is a, I was appealing model compared to conventional. Not that to say that this is going to replace and be much better, but it's more individualized. It obviously depends. It it gives access to difficult hidden material insights that really come deep from the person's psyche. That's what people typically experience, and that in a way makes it already kind of neat and personalized compared to conventional pharmacotherapy. Um, so the integration will then, in a way, be around whatever came up about the experience um, to sort of um, some degree of meaning make, making, not particularly led by the therapist, but uh, reflecting with the person on their experience. And if it has been challenging, so p- for instance, very difficult interpersonal stuff coming up or trauma, Uh, or very difficult, yeah, other kinds of material, then the integration, and this is also going to be better when we are out of these stringent trials that we are currently mainly running, where you can maybe then offer more integration work to people who actually had quite a challenging time. And is there um, is there any way to placebo control it, or does it matter? Is it just that you need some form of significant catalyst to then follow up with therapeutic interactions, or is there something in the psilocybin itself that that changes the mind a lot of it comes from the experience that is directly induced by the the compound this psychological peak state or mystical type state that people are in is is relatively unique you can maybe go somewhat in that direction through deep meditation and other practices but it is a very very profound and quite unique state um that the the compound itself induces so it's very much around the experience that is directly induced by the drug whether it's psilocybin whether it's DMT whether it's LSD they overlap massively in the experiences that people get they are different drugs so they last a bit you know different duration and so on and there might be interesting advantages in doing a shorter experience because it will be cost effective and therefore more scalable so therefore we together with companies are testing DMT which is given intravenously and then have a 30 minute instead of a four hour psilocybin experience. All that is being tested. All looks similarly promising. Um, but um, you were asking what you were asking. <laughs> what are you actually asking? Sorry, I think I went on a No, no, not at all. I was asking whether or not it was the actual compound itself that created the mood change or was it that you just needed some major catalyst for subsequent discussion and that it was effectively talking therapy yeah. that had the effect. But there is a follow-up that I want to ask, which is in terms of um, dosage, compared to recreational psilocybin use through magic mushrooms, is this a significantly greater dose? Is it commensurate with what would be a recreational dose? It is pretty similar to what most people would use for a tripping recreational dose. It is in 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 that range, 
Um, we are also doing trials and a lot of people out in the real world are doing microdosing, which is tiny, tiny, 5 to 10% of a full dose. That is also being tested. That looks a bit less promising. Whether it's the drug or the combination of the psychological input, um, it's we we believe it's it's a mix. Um, so you also induce a very very flexible brain state psychologically and a very plastic brain state biologically in the brain through these uh, compounds. So it's the if, in a way it's the pharmacologically induced experience squared with the context and the therapy around it. So it's, it, you have this sort of open, flexible, plastic state opened up by the drug that is then used um, uh, through w- with the psychological input. So, And it's very difficult to completely distinguish because the only way to do that would be to take all the psychology, all the support, all the preparation, integration away from it. That was done in a few places in the early phase in the 50s, including where I'm from, Copenhagen, Denmark. And they had some very, very not brilliant results by giving a well, very high dose without any psychological about. support. Given the reputation created by that LSD experimental wave, the Aldous Huxley um, generation in the, in the 50s and early 60s, and the reputation that that has left with psychedelics, does that hamper its use and will it continue to hamper its use as a therapeutic because of the reputation it, it earned? It's it's also about looking back and looking at what did they do exactly? What were the trials? What were the outcomes? And what what, what went, if anything, wrong? And when we review carefully all the solid uh, published trials from that era and you do some kind of meta-analysis where you try to condense the uh, results, overall for depression, overall for alcohol addiction, they look fine. They had good results and it was conducted mainly very safely. There were some examples, including that one in Copenhagen, where they gave very high doses, not properly consented and not with support around it. And they had a few quite bad cases there. Not surprisingly, from even at that time, the guidelines at that time were not followed. Um, and, and that will then, that's what everybody is really, not that complicated to avoid that, because it's just actually follow um, logic and existing guidelines that already existed back then. Um, well, it'll be very interesting to see what the, the Australian experience is, as you say, as the cohort grows beyond relatively small tests so far. That is Dr. David Erizzo, who is Clinical Senior Lecturer in Psychiatry at the Imperial College London. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy. With Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.